continuing a copy of God's Word now to the Gospel of Matthew. Reading there once again in chapter 10. Here we go from page 169 of the two Bibles. We've been working our way through chapter 10 as Jesus is sending out his disciples. We're going to try to finish up this chapter today. We've been reading this morning in verse 34. Matthew 10, verse 34, let's give attention now to God's holy word. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. When he receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so I'm reading God's word. Amen. Please receive it. Father, we ask now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word and to be with your servant. Father, now seek to open this passage and to work in all of our hearts, Father. The sense in which this passage is a difficult one, maybe even one of the most difficult passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Direct our hearts now this morning. Your truth. Work in us for your glory. Bless us in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes we might forget where the Apostle Paul was when he penned his letter to the church at Philippi. In the middle of his letter, he writes about himself, about having no confidence in his flesh, and then he lists all the ways in which he could have confidence in his flesh. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, and he, as he describes himself as his righteousness, blameless. But then he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
as Paul writes of his loss, we might think that he's really just referring to those enumerated things that he had accomplished, the things that he had done in his life before the scales were removed from his eyes. We tend to forget that Paul was in prison. And then he lost so much more than the things that he enumerated. Paul was in prison for confessing Christ. Paul was in prison for preaching Christ. He did mean he had truly lost his life. The very thing that Jesus speaks about today in this passage in Matthew chapter 10. You know that Jesus had called his disciples, and now he's sending them out. This is the third sermon we're going to have on this account of, of Jesus sending his disciples out, sending the twelve out. You know that Jesus had already been healing. You know that he had already been preaching the gospel, the good news, and now he is sending his disciples out and gives that harvest, which is plentiful, where the people are as if they have no shepherd at all. And he's been instructing them where to go. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and to no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's been instructing them to say what to do. Proclaim as you go. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it's not, shake the dust off and leave that town. And then he's told them that they will face persecution. And sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, they will deliver you to court and slag you. You'll be dragged before governors. And he's told them, do not fear. Fear God, the one who cares for you. He will be with you as you go out. He's told them, everyone who acknowledges him before men, that he will acknowledge before his Father in heaven. But then there's a shift in this instruction as Jesus is sending them out. Yes, he's been giving them words of encouragement to their task, but now, now he's, he's telling them that these are the words that you should be giving to those to whom you're going to be speaking. This morning, I want to see the true grace. One will lose his life becoming worthy to receive the reward of eternal life. Through grace, one will lose his life becoming worthy to receive the reward of eternal life. We get in three points this morning. First, bringing the sword. Secondly, provoking the separation. And finally, granting the reward. And first, bringing the sword. Consider Jesus' words here to his disciples as he's on the cusp of sending them out. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. The words of Jesus may not have been surprising to the disciples. They were considering him to be like David, the warrior king. They were expecting Jesus to be the one who would usher in the retaking of the promised land. 
of the Israelites, who would establish or reestablish the throne of David, the one who would remove the Romans from power and bring back Israelite rule and prosperity, the one who would, in fact, use the sword to accomplish these things. Wasn't it Peter who denied that Jesus would be killed? He hadn't gotten there yet, but he will. As Jesus describes that he would suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. This shall never happen to you. He denies the suffering. Wasn't it Peter who took out the sword to fend off those who came to arrest Christ? It might have been surprising to the disciples that Jesus would refer to the sword. But this may be one of the most difficult passages for us to rightly understand. For we would understand as Christians that it was Jesus who would bring peace. Notwithstanding the disciples' misunderstanding regarding the nature of the king and his kingdom, we're probably surprised to read this morning of these words. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. As we consider Jesus' ministry, especially his ultimate ministry of presenting himself as the perfect sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, Christians usually and rightly think of peace. Peace with God. Let's think of Gideon as he's visited by an angel of the Lord. As he, as he recognizes now that he's seen the face of God through his angel, so to speak, the Lord says to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon builds an altar and then calls it, The Lord is peace. Isaiah, throughout his prophecy, speaks of peace. He writes of peace. He refers to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Wonderful counsel, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Peace is pictured by Isaiah. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. It's a picture of peace. Isaiah writes of peace in chapter 26. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. He refers to the covenant of peace. Think of how Paul, the Apostle Paul, started most of his letters. Grace to you and peace. If you know anything as a follower of Jesus Christ, you know that outside of Christ, there can be no peace with God. Our sin brings us into the category of being children of wrath or enemies of God, but in the blood of Christ, one believes, as one believes upon Christ, knowing who he is and what he has done, and taking the eternal wrath of God to the sins of his children. And know that Jesus brings peace to all the children of God. And that's how Paul can write in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So why this statement? Why is Christ known? He brought, he is bringing peace on earth. 
is the first question that we should be answering the text. But it may actually help us to jump to the second question to answer the first. What did Jesus mean when he said that he came to bring a sword? Because they go together, don't they? What did Jesus mean? Once we have to look at context, it's our friend. And here it's critical to our understanding of these words of Jesus. As we review the context already, Jesus is in the midst of sending out his twelve disciples as sheep in the midst of wolves. He sent out his disciples to proclaim the newness of the kingdom, which proclaim the king has arrived. He's instructing his disciples that they're about to go out and preach the gospel, the good news. The Messiah had come. And so we must remember the context of the disciples going out with the word of God. Going out with the word of life. And so it appears in Jesus' reference to us, or maybe we might say vested, is a reference to the very word of God. The disciples were to carry wisdom and proclaim. Consider other scripture passages which use the metaphor of the sword for the word of God. In Ephesians chapter 7, as we're reading through the army of God, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Of the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, where he writes, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is not unique to Scripture that Jesus would refer to the word of God as a sword. Now, that context under our belt, under our belt and, and thinking that it's possible that Jesus was using the sword as a reference to the Word of God. We must see this statement about peace to be set in the context of the Word of God going out. And so we see a sword. And we think of a sword. Not many of us are sword men or sword women. But we know that the sword comes to a point. And that's the first portion of the sword which is used, usually, against an opponent. And it seems to be what Jesus is referring to, at least initially. The sword is that which pierces. It pierces the object into which it is thrust. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do by his person, through his preaching and preaching, through his work, Jesus was initially seeking to pierce the very souls of those who would actually see him and hear him truly. You see it here in Matthew's gospel. Remember the beatitude? How would the stony heart become poor and mournful and meek and hungering after righteousness and merciful and pure? Only by being pierced. How would one turn away from being angry with his brother and being liable to judgment? How would one who says he's fool, he's liable to the hell of fire, be pleased? Jesus sought to convict or pierce the heart with the conviction that men, all men, have sinned against the living God. 
I said this prayer that Jesus speaks of on the way to Christ. The first use of tears that has and caused them to acknowledge and conclude and be convicted and be sorrowful for his or her sin. Do you see? Do you see the use of the sword, the metaphor for the very word of God? Jesus being the very radiance of his Father, now projecting and displaying and shining forth the holiness of his Father. The point of the sword must be first. Piercing the soul with the word, the heat of the word, as the Spirit takes it up, pierces through the hardness of the heart, all by grace, cleansing it from stone to flesh. That must be first, for unless one understands that he or she has grievously sinned against the living and holy triune God, he or she will never grasp the need for a Savior who is the only Jesus Christ. And so Christ brings us here to pierce the heart, to hold us. There's no other way. As Jesus pierced the heart with him, peace will not come. Peace will never come to us unless Jesus first pierces your heart. If you're here this morning, as we're listening, you're watching on the internet, as we're listening to a recording, if he has not pierced your heart yet, cry out to him even now. Ask him if he would use his word and pierce your heart to bring it from stone to flesh, if you could hear him truly, hear him, and confess this sin before him and run to him, seeking forgiveness and sins. Bring us to our second point, provoking a separation. Now, piercing is first, and then the sins of separation follow. Once the heart has been pierced, once the heart has been transformed from stone to a fleshly heart, then, then there can and there will be separation. Jesus speaks of it. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against the mother, a daughter in law against the mother in law, a person's enemy will be those of his own. Household. As we read this morning, this is a reference, this is an illusion, this is possibly an exact quote from the prophet Micah. Jesus is referring back to Micah's words, to Micah's inspired words, his realization that, that he was surrounded by the ungodly, even within his household. Jesus is using the closest relationship that we have in this world. I think without question that we would all consider our biological families to be some of the closest relationships that we have in this world. And especially the relationship between a parent and a child. Children, even adult children, depend upon their parents. They look to their parents. They trust in their parents. And parents love and cherish and care for their children. There's a unique bond between father and son, between daughter and mother. And so Jesus takes the closest intimate relations that exist within the family unit 
and he uses that, and he says, that is what I came to separate. Place one against the other. To create enemies within the house. What was Jesus saying? Was he against families? Was he the destroyer of family ties? Was he seeking to break down the family unit? Of course not. Consider the first commandment. Honor your father and mother. Consider Jesus' summary of the second table of the ten commandments. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your closest neighbor? Those are in the household. Jesus was not proclaiming or promoting the destruction of the family unit. He was using the family, the close ties between father and son, mother and daughter, to ensure that his disciples taught a powerful truth. But as the news of the arrival of the king was proclaimed, as the word of God, the word of life, was preached, it would not only convict of sin, but it, the word, like the sword, would separate. But the word of truth is so powerful that it would separate even the close ties that exist within a family. Huh. Some would believe the word. Some would believe and trust in Jesus. And some would not. For the children of God, the gospel, the good news, the word of God would become the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But for the children of wrath, those who reject the word of God, they would claim to be wise, they would become fools, they would exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. We see the division. Those are those quotes come from the first chapter of Romans. And for those who are truly giving ears to hear the words of Jesus, would no longer be able to remain in the same relationship that they had before the word came. The children of light would not be able to remain in the same relation that they had formerly with the children of darkness. It would not be possible. Even if they were their parents, even if they were their biological children, you see that if one recognizes and confesses God as his heavenly Father, that things change. They have to. And that's what Jesus was teaching. Not only separation, but an enmity will come about. Jesus knew that God spoke of it even in the garden. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And so that brings us to another aspect, another truth, another precept that Jesus is teaching. Whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. You see, Christ, Christ becomes the center of the lives of all those who are trusting in him. He becomes the only one to whom you are devoted. He becomes the ultimate one to whom you obey. And thus, you love him more than any other, and the disciples needed to preach that and proclaim that truth. But that's then the key to the sword, isn't it? The separation that comes. By loving Christ, by loving Christ, many will see you as their enemy. 
and preaching it. So we can look at Abraham this morning. We consider how much he loved God. It wasn't that he didn't love his son Isaac. But God had called him to go and, and sacrifice him. And Abraham loved God so and was so obedient to him and, and knew him as his center, the center of his life, the center of all things that he was willing to and did lay his son on the altar, binding him up, ready to put his knife to his throat. Because he loved God so much. Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And the separation now is coming into clearer view and focus. What is it to follow Jesus? He's already taught on this subject. Scribe came to him and said, People, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes of holes. Those of the year have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was saying that to follow me is to set aside the world. Another comes to him and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury the land. Jesus was to be the center. Jesus was to be followed. Following Christ requires that its foundation humble submission. That's what he was telling his disciples would be needed. If one were to truly seek after eternal life, Jesus wasn't asking for people to join his organization. Jesus was not asking for men or women to become CEOs or presidents in a corporation that he was setting up. Jesus says very specifically and particularly here and in other places that he was calling people to follow him. You see, the Christ Constantly was submitting himself to his father's will. Constantly aligning his will with his father. And doing it humbly and joyfully. Not one aspect of the will of his father was ever left undone by Jesus. And Jesus was not merely sent to perform certain tasks. You might think that. He was sent to go to the cross. That was it. He, he was sent to die. That was it. Well, yes, he was, but it, it wasn't merely to go to the cross to perform a certain task. which was necessary to save the people of God, but he was sent to do it with his heart in complete submission. There's a difference between performing a task and performing a task with your heart in complete submission. Have you thought about that? 
Have you thought about Christ's heart as he goes to the cross, even after he had prayed to his Father, take this cup from me, that not my will, but your will be done. His heart was in complete submission. Telling Peter to put this sword away. Have you thought about the heart attitude, the inclination of Jesus' heart as he goes to the cross? The definition of following Jesus must then be striving after that humble heart of submission. That brings us to our next verse. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will not take it. Seems we are building up to this point. As Jesus is saying, his disciples, God has given them a way to speak. As one is seeking to follow Jesus, Jesus makes things clear. If you're not sincere, your purpose is to keep your life in the world while trying to follow Christ at the same time. If you're being subject to the world, if you're loving the world, if you can see that your true life is bound up in the world with worldly things, with worldly pleasures and pursuits, then you cannot be truly following Christ. Think of Lot's wife. As we were given grace to flee from the hell and the fire storm that was falling down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were told not to look back. What does Lot's wife do? She turns back because she couldn't separate herself from the world, from Sodom and Gomorrah. If I describe you this morning, the world has its grip upon you. And you have rejected Christ and are following the path of death. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This must be slightly terrifying words. If one is not worthy of Jesus, then Jesus will not be confessing you before his Father. And there will be a cup of wrath awaiting you at the day of judgment. But what then does it mean to lose your life for the sake of Christ? Only when he uses those words for my sake. In a sense, that takes us back to Paul, doesn't it? Paul's account of everything lost for the sake of Christ. He's in prison for the sake of Christ. He hates Christ for the sake of Christ. He counts everything else as rubbish that he might gain Christ. So he lost everything for the sake of Christ, giving his all up. What are you planning to in this world? What have you placed in the way of loving and serving Christ as your all in all? What do you love more than Christ? He's desired in, in hard questions and questions we should and must be asking of ourselves. Is it family? Is it children? Is it parents? Is it money? Is it health? Is it peace? Is it comfort? You can fill in all kinds of things in that blank. 
faithfully to this man. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's his call to us this morning. Lose your life in this place for the sake of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that brings us to our third point, against drinking the reward. There's a sense in which this is hard to think. These words that Jesus is sending his disciples out with are, in a sense, hard. Hard to accept, hard to grasp, hard to understand. For the people that the disciples were going to were lost sheep. In a sense, they had lost the Word of God. In a sense, they had lost their purpose for existence. They had, they had lost their relationship with God. And now the disciples were going out and they were proclaiming, how to regain that, that relationship with the living God? And in a sense, from, from a lost sheep perspective, this would be hard. They're asking me to give up these things. And then Jesus sets before them the reward. But whoever receives the disciples, whoever receives their word, whoever receives the very word of God, actually receives Christ. And whoever receives Christ receives the one who sent him, receives God himself. And so the proclamation was that there would be a receipt of Christ for all those who heard the words that you were preaching and received them. Indeed, there was encouragement for the disciples as they would go out, because that was their objective, wasn't it? But he goes further. And he talks about the reward, doesn't he? The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. He's talking about the disciples going out and their words being received. And what would the reward be when the words are received? And he's talking about eternal life. Is there no other reward than eternal life? Of course, that is the reward that he's speaking of. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. That's the reward. That Jesus Christ will be acknowledging every single person who receives the property, receives the righteous one, who gives that cup of cold water to the one because he is a disciple. I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You may consider my words to be hard. I am bringing a sword that I will cause a father to be against his son. But if you don't love me more than father, more than mother, more than your family, you will have no part of me. Here's the opposite side of that same coin. If you do, if by grace you come to love me, you come to know me as the center of your life, you come to see me as your Savior, you come to obey me as your Lord, then here's the reward. I will confess you before my Father. Life in this world will be lost. 
but the reward of eternal life will be genuine. Please make no mistake this morning. Jesus Christ is, is not preaching the gospel of work, righteousness. No one. No one would be able to survive that which he's speaking of in their own nature. No one would be able to move in that direction that he's speaking of in their own nature. No, it must be by grace. It's all by grace that the heart would be pierced. It's all by grace that that separation would be received and, and submitted to. It's all by grace that one would love Christ more than anything in this world. It's not because of men. It's because Christ has earned this for every single person that we see his will. He grace, one will lose his life, becoming worthy to receive the reward of eternal life. Paul had died in prison, hadn't he? He died to himself. He lost his life because he would gain the reward. Praise be to God. Father in heaven, we are so insufficient and unable to do any of these things that Jesus has described. And so we pray now to continue piercing our hearts, continue to separate us from this world. And Father, allow us, allow us to receive that reward of Christ in us. Turn on his life. Thank you and praise you for the strength of the Spirit. And beyond praise and hope, we thank you for your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name.